hello and welcome to the Plus Podcast. I'm Rachel Thomas. It's a bleak time for the financial markets. We've seen financial institutions fall and governments around the world struggle to stabilise the markets. But who is to blame? According to media reports, there are two suspects in the dock. The rocket scientists, also known as the financial mathematicians, who provided the information behind the market's decisions, or the greedy bankers who only thought about quick profits and their end-of-year bonuses. To find out more, PLUS went to the Dana Centre in London, where several experts were debating which was the best way to make a financial decision, using maths or your gut instinct. We started off by asking David Hand, the Director of the Quantitative Financial Risk Management Centre at Imperial College, about the financial maths most of us will have come into contact with, the maths behind the loans made by high street banks. David Hands. What happens is that based on based on retrospective data, data about car, past customers, their sort of data on their application forms um, and, and how they've behaved in the past, whether they've turned out to be good risks or bad risks, whether they've defaulted or not. Uh, people build predictive models which enable you to predict whether someone's likely to default on a loan or, or have difficulty repaying uh, so that you can apply those models to new people based on their application form data. So what kind of mathematics or statistics are behind the models that you're talking about? Uh, uh, quite a wide range of different kinds of statistical techniques are used. There, there are sort of standard statistical tools like regression and logistic regression uh, at one end, but at the other end, especially in areas like fraud detection, they use highly sophisticated models such as neural networks, support vector machines and random forests. These are pretty esoteric things, but are very powerful predictors. The downside of them is that they are very sophisticated and therefore not very easy to explain. So they can't really be used in those sorts of situations where, for example, by law, you have to give some kind of explanation underlying your reason for, for example, rejecting somebody for a loan. Some people have blamed the current crisis on very complicated mathematical structures used to used in trading um, derivatives things like that are you do you think that the way these financial transactions are, are modeled and developed do you think that will be changed as a result of today's you know current events I, I think it could well be changed I think the one of the issues is that the people who built the models clearly understand them but other people, for example, their managers um, may well not understand them and therefore not really appreciate the risks that, that they're taking. But I have to say, I think we should separate, we should distinguish between the models and, and how the models are used. In the area I work in, the retail banking sector, um, the models are pretty good at predicting whether someone is a high risk or, or, or not. But merely predicting that someone is a high risk doesn't stop somebody nevertheless going ahead and, and taking a bet on that person. So we've got to distinguish between the models and how the models are used. Do you think that the, um, the current crisis could have been predicted or should have been predicted using some sort of mathematics? Uh... I think in some sense the answer to that is yes, it was predicted. The trouble is that there, are, there were a great many different predictions. So some people would have predicted it and indeed did and some hedge funds have done very well out of it many other people didn't predict it so uh, in some sense the answer is yes and in some sense the answer is no. But what about those mythical beasts, the credit derivatives that seem to be at the heart of the current financial crisis? 
We spoke to Chris Rogers, Professor of Financial Mathematics at Cambridge, and asked him what role maths played in the derivatives market. Well, mathematics is uh, is used in um, uh, a number of ways, but I guess the, the most prominent use is, is in the uh, issue of, uh, of, of modelling asset prices and then using those models to form um, prices of derivatives and perhaps more importantly, um, hedges for derivatives. So a derivative is, <clears throat> is some, some kind of instrument whose payoff depends on... Um, the prices of a number of underlying instruments. So, I mean, the simplest example is a call option where you you uh, write an option um, which, say, expires at the end of the year, and this option allows you to buy the underlying instrument for a named price, a price that was written into the contract at the end of the year. Um, and you don't have to do that, of course. So if you get to the end of the year and the thing is trading for more than the named price, then you, you cash it in and you take the difference. Otherwise, you just throw it away. So that's the simplest kind of derivative, and uh, derivatives have been around for mm, getting on for 20 years, I guess, in volume, and uh, they can get enormously complicated. Um, uh, and some uh, some of these things are sort of uh, kind of um, prudent hedges against possible moves in prices, and some of them have got more of the flavour of, of an outright gamble. Chris says that it's not the concept of derivatives that is the problem, but the kind of things that derivatives are now based on. The kind of underlyings that these things have been written on have, has, 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 has broadened. So, for example, um, when they started, I guess derivatives were largely being written on things like currencies, stocks, um, commodities. So things which were, in any case, quite liquidly traded. There was a liquid market. And if you wrote a derivative on something like a, a foreign currency, you, you stand a good chance of being able to hedge it in some meaningful way. So... You know, each day the price of the foreign currency moves a little bit. That uh, implies that your uh, derivative price has changed a little bit and you make a little change of your holding of the foreign currency to kind of match the change in the price of the of the derivative that you, you'd written. So you have this concept of, of a sort of gradual adjustment of your holding of underlying instruments to protect yourself against the possible changes in price of the derivative that you've written. But I guess the trouble we've, we've been facing recently has arisen from the fact that we've been writing derivative instruments on, um, on things which don't have a, a liquidly traded underlying. And um, the credit uh, in um, derivatives industry is a very good example of this. So we have um, perhaps the simplest credit derivative is what's called a credit default swap, a CDS. And this, in effect, is a sort of insurance policy. So you pay to your counterparty a small payment every quarter, um, and that is an insurance which says that if some um, corporate bond, say, that I have I've written or some corporate debt that I've got um, fails to pay out, so the corporation goes bust and I don't receive my interest payments, I don't receive my principal back, then the, uh, the counterparty that I've made a deal with will pay me what I don't get. So it's an insurance product. I mean, it's unlikely the, the firm that I've I've loaned money to is going to go belly up, or at least we think it is. Um, and so I pay a small amount every quarter to be protected against the risk that it does. Now the problem with that, in, from the point of view, you know, viewed as a derivative, is that um, it's it's not something that you can easily hedge. So the person that you've uh, bought this insurance off is either going to pay you um, nothing at all or a lot of money. 
Um, so it's really very much like an insurance product, and you can't hedge it. I mean, there's no um, there's no sort of gradually changing underlying that you can sort of gradually adjust your position in. Um, everything goes nicely until bang, the, the company goes down, and and then there's lots of lots of tears and lots of money. What role do mathematicians have in the development and the use of these sorts of derivatives? I think you have to understand that the, the that the mathematicians come in after the derivatives in a sense. So somebody dreams up a product that they think will sell, that they think somebody out there is going to buy. And in the case of um, CDOs, which have been at the heart of this, so collateralized debt obligations, um, somebody dreams up a product and then they go away and they tell the mathematicians, now find a model for this, fit it to the market data. That market data, at least initially, is coming off um, a, a relatively small amount of, of information. So the, the products are perhaps launched in a, in a small scale way. A little bit of information comes back about prices people are prepared to pay. And once you've got that, the mathematicians have got to calibrate the, the models they've built to the data that they've got. And then the thing becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If the original kind of market prices were um, out of whack, if, if somehow the people buying this had not appreciated the possible risks and they, they're prepared to pay more for this thing than, than ideally it's worth, um, then um, you know, that sort of perpetuates itself. It perpetuates itself until big losses come in. Shouldn't the mathematicians, I understand that they're fitting models to data, but shouldn't they have understood the risks involved and shouldn't they have highlighted the risks involved in these products? Well, the model is, is only as good as the assumptions and the assumptions perhaps on, on particularly on matters of uh, correlated defaults when lots of firms go down together, that sort of thing is, you know, the, the assumptions were frankly too optimistic. But maybe the problem is not that the, the, the mathematics has been used, but it's been misused. That I mean, I've no doubt that there are that the people who are working in the industry, I mean, as as quants, as as, as the sort of the, the, the technicians, the engineers of these products, um, they know the basics of probability and statistics. They understand, um, you know, in a reasonably sophisticated way what risk is. But it's very hard for them uh, to argue against uh, the marketing people who are making a fat profit. Credit derivatives were used to sell on all sorts of loans, including subprime loans to people who had a high risk of defaulting on their payments. If everybody knew what the, the damage was, then we wouldn't have a problem. The, the problem is fear. The problem is that nobody really knows what the, you know, when the, the losses on subprime will stop. It's not as if all of the losses are going to happen at once. These losses are going to kind of keep going for quite some time as people struggle and then fail to repay. And so nobody really knows um, the full extent of the losses when it's all finished. Um, and that's part of the problem because if you're trying to, you know, if you're going to lend some money to Lehman Brothers, say, um, you know, they've got some subprime on their books, um, you know, how bad is it? Uh, you don't know. Probably they don't even know. The real damage has been caused by the impact on on confidence in uh, in the money markets. That that <clears throat> banks are reluctant now to lend to one another because they don't know which one's going to go down next. And and you know when you think about the events of September two thousand and eight, you realise that those fears were actually very well founded. And you know when in a matter of two weeks, you know five or six enormous financial corporations. Uh, um, disappeared or were taken over. I mean, it's a, it's a colossal earthquake in the financial system. Do you think 
that someone should have predicted what was going to happen. There were undoubtedly people who foresaw the risks, who saw that there were risks in this particular type of business. And I mean, Goldman Sachs is one particular organisation that that took a much more pessimistic view, and as it turned out rightly, um, than many others. So um, it it was kind of out there. It was not so much a, a matter of prediction as a matter of risk assessment. And I think uh, in most cases of, of the banks dealing with subprimes, they, subprime uh, risk, they were they just didn't assess the risk highly enough. It's like with with any of these things. Um, if the business is profitable, then um, people are going to do it. So it seems that maths might be off the hook. Even if financial mathematicians did foresee the current crisis, it would have been almost impossible to argue in the face of huge profits. So are the bankers and their culture of big bonuses for short-term gains to be blamed? Perhaps John Coates, ex-banker and now a researcher in neuroscience and finance at Cambridge, has a defence they could use. We spoke to John at the Dana Centre event about his research into the impact of hormones on decision-making. We're working with a model called the winner effect, which has been tested in a number of animal species. In that model, when two males go into a competition, say a fight, their testosterone's rise in in preparation for the fight. When the, de- the fight is decided, the winner comes out with elevated levels of testosterone. This gives the winner an added advantage in the next round of competition because testosterone is known, well, first of all, it has effects on your body and on your muscles, which um, gives them an advantage, but more importantly, it increases confidence and risk-taking. And so this gives them an, an edge in the next round of competition. If he wins again, his testosterone rises once again and sort of exaggerates this this cognitive or this 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 effect on confidence and risk taking and this thing can sort of feed on itself and they think this might be the physiological substrate to winning and losing streaks in sports because they've also done this tested this hypothesis with um, with human athletes um, what happens in the sort of end game of this winner effect as testosterone builds up in the bodies of these male animals they start taking more and more risk they become overconfident, and the risks they take are no longer smart risks, they're stupid risks. Um, they go out in the open more, they pick more fights, um, they patrol too large an area, and they neglect parenting duty. So their rate of predation goes up. So it was a very nice model of how winning in the early rounds of a game can increase testosterone levels and as a result confidence and risk taking but eventually this 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 steroid that's built up in their body causes them to take stupid and ultimately dangerous risks and that was the hypothesis we've been testing on a trading floor in the city and so far the data appears to confirm that uh, the same thing's happening in in male traders. So what was the behavior that you saw when you were working on a trading desk that first suggested this theory to you? During the dot-com bubble in New York um, people were acting very odd. They were sort of displaying classic case uh, symptoms of, of mania, um, overconfidence, um, racing thoughts, diminished need for sleep. They were sort of carrying themselves like Tom Wolfe's Master of the Universe or Michael Lewis's great big, big swinging dick. Um, and the thing is, the people, I mean, I was observing these people, I knew some of them, they weren't acting like that before and they weren't acting like that after the bubble popped. So it occurred to me that some chemical was altering their behavior during the bubble. I also noticed that women seemed relatively unaffected by the frenzy. Both facts sort of put me on the trail of a, a chemical like testosterone. This negative steroid feedback loop primarily affects young men. So perhaps a change in the makeup of the financial trading floor, including more women and more older men, would counteract this problem. 
If you'd like to find out more about the maths behind the current crisis and financial mathematics, visit our website, plus.maths.org. That's all we've got time for in this podcast. I'm Rachel Thomas. Goodbye. Goodbye.